0: Stand with me in honor of God as we read His Word together. I'm going to read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and read all the way through verse 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, "...heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions." always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You may be seated. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves. You've given us Your Word. You've given us Your Spirit. And so we pray that You would come this morning. Give us understanding. We want to know You. We want to know how to live in these last days. We want to know how to live in the midst of difficulty. So please come and be our teacher. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. in the passage we just read, Paul continues to exhort and instruct young Timothy. There's a sense of urgency as he begins. He begins here by telling Timothy, you must understand this, but know this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulties. This, little, this passage begins with this little word, but. And so this should have our attention. It, he's marking a contrast to what he's just told Timothy. If you look up in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, he has just given Timothy some instruction about what it means to be a servant of the Lord. He's instructed him about character and actions that should mark a servant of the Lord. He says, Timothy, you mustn't be quarrelsome. Don't be argumentative, looking for a fight. Instead, you should be kind to everyone. You need to be able to teach, Timothy. You must patiently endure evil, correcting your opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. He may grant your opponents repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, which is a way to say they may be saved. But then this phrase, he says, but, but understand this. You need to know this, Timothy. You need to understand the times in which you live. And we can say the same some 2,000 years later. We, like Timothy, if we are to deal with difficulties in the last days, we must first understand the times. We must understand the times. Paul says, yes, Timothy, God may grant repentance. He may lead some to knowledge of the truth. But you, you need to be aware of this. Difficult times will come. Paul calls these these times in which they were living the last days. The last days. This this phrase simply refers to the time between Christ's first and second coming. We might think about the last days beginning with the the life and death and resurrection and the ascension of Christ marking the, the beginning of the last days. And as Paul and Timothy lived in the last days, so we continue to live in these last days. What was it that Timothy needed to know? He needed to know that these days would be marked by times of difficulty. Times would be dangerous. They would be hard. And as a young leader in the church at Ephesus, Timothy needed to be aware of this. Same is true for us today. If we are to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, we must understand the times. If we're to engage in this battle for holy living, then we too must understand the times. We mustn't be naive. I think about a military unit who's preparing to carry out some kind of a rescue mission. That unit is briefed about the dangers that they're going to encounter, as you enter into this territory, here's the things that you need to look for. You need to be aware of this. Paul is informing Timothy of what he can expect. He can expect there to be difficult times. Why, we ask. The answer in short is because mankind has fallen in nature. There's a brokenness. There's a darkness that permeates humanity and has since the fall in the garden. Difficult times will come because people in their very nature are separated from God. A bit later in Second Timothy, Paul says that evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. One of Paul's concerns here is that sound doctrine be upheld in the church in Ephesus. And he's aware of the corruption that's entering the church through false teaching. And so, in explanation for why these difficult times will come, he launches into a lengthy list of descriptors of these apostate teachers who had infiltrated the church. And his purpose in so doing is not necessarily to say that every person is going to be characterized by every one of these sins, but rather it's a way to say, here's here's a way to understand what characterizes evil people. A description which could be applied to the evil people in Paul's day and in our day. We could even broaden this description to say it's applicable to those outside of Christ. but here Paul specifically is concerned about the false teachers. As we read through this list, we may be tempted to think, my, are people really this bad? But may we use this as an opportunity to have our minds reshaped and refocused by Scripture. The condition of the human heart is, far more dreadful than we care to acknowledge. And if we're to understand the times in which we live and the difficulties of those times, we must understand the condition of humanity. We need to know the condition of the human heart. We notice that the list begins in verse 2 with people who are lovers of self. And near the end of this section, we see that people are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We might say at the core, the problem is misguided love. Instead of loving God with our heart and soul and mind and strength, in our fallenness, mankind is consumed with love of self. Self Self-love manifests itself in many ways. It lies to preserve a reputation. There's self-preservation. Carnal pleasures are pursued to satisfy lust. People are harmed to gratify the self. Words that should be spoken are withheld for fear of personal repercussions. Words that should not be spoken are spoken to advance one's agenda. Dishonesty in business to pad one's pocket and the list could continue on and on. Self-love manifests itself in a million ways. Does it strike you that self-love is at the top of this list? Is it possible that we've grown so accustomed to this cultural idea that we should love ourselves that we're not appalled by the sin of self-love? Self-love is directly contradictory to what we read in Scripture in passages like Philippians 2, In verse 3 where it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The false teachers described by Paul here were infatuated with themselves, and the vices that follow flow out of the love of self. They're lovers of self, but... That's not all. They're lovers of money. The root from which all kinds of evil grows. They're proud and arrogant. A proud person wants to tell you about himself. Words like boisterous and loud come to mind. An arrogant person is one who sees himself above others. It's the proverbial nose-in-the-air disposition. Disposition. An air of superiority, this elitist attitude. Pride is celebrated in our day. People are encouraged to be proud. It's an age of self exaltation, self promotion. But we, as God's people, must remember that God is opposed to the proud. We read, for example, in Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. God will lay low the proud. Consider the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Obadiah against the people of Edom, that ancient nation who in pride had set herself against the people of God. The prophet Obadiah wrote these words. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Pride in its million manifestations is an affront against holy God because it's contrary to the very nature of Christ the Savior. Consider the absence of any ounce of pride in our beloved Savior. As He got down on His knees and washed the feet of of his disciples, leaving an example for us to follow. Christ, our perfect Savior, demonstrated humility as he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Pride and arrogance in the lives of these false teachers in Ephesus was repugnant because it stood in direct opposition to the character of God. The list continues. They're abusive. This word sounds like blasphemy. It's not likely that the slander is, the blasphemy is against God, but against others. Abusive speech is the idea here. They're demeaning or injurious in their words. A lover of self will elevate himself while slandering others. Slander others to elevate oneself. Furthermore, the people here are described as disobedient to parents. They're ungrateful, unholy, unloving. They're unappeasable, irreconcilable. They're stuck in their own ways. They're unwilling to change. They're slanderous. Gossips without self-control, indulging themselves at every opportunity. They're brutal, which is a way to say they act like wild animals. They don't love good. They're treacherous. They're traitors. Same word used to describe Judas. They're reckless and rash. They're swollen with conceit. And then... They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's worth noting that these people love pleasure rather than God. There's no love of God in their hearts. It could be translated lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of God. Loving pleasures is a way to speak of a lifestyle that characterizes unbelievers In Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, speaking about those who have come to Christ, this is their life before then, before they were changed, before they were given new lives. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. As Paul brings this list to a close, we see there's something very concerning about these individuals. They look the part. He says they have an appearance of godliness. They have an appearance of godliness, but their hearts are unchanged. They deny its power. They appear to be pious, but they deny the power of godliness, which is a way to say they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit within them, enabling them to live out the truths they claim to believe. God gives to his people his Holy Spirit. He gives his people the power to live for his glory. But there's a disconnect for these, Paul describes. There's an external show, the form of godliness, but denying its power. There's no relationship. The things that they're doing, they're doing in their own strength. It's a form of godliness. Denying its power. They lack a relationship. It's appropriate for us to pause and ask How do I relate to God? Do I relate to Him on the basis of of some performance? Or do I relate to Him on the basis of the finished work of Christ, my Savior? True Christianity is marked by belief of biblical doctrine and a lifestyle that accords with those doctrines a lifestyle that is empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit external conformity to a religious lifestyle and Religious practices will eventually be exposed for what it is, namely a show of religion and hypocrisy. Paul is concerned that Timothy understand the times he's living in. Jesus' strong words of judgment fell upon the religious elites of his day. They professed godliness with their actions, but their hearts were far from him. Speaking to the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 15, Jesus says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Honoring God with their lips while their hearts were far from him. And so we can ask ourselves, what motivates me to do what I do why am I here this morning? Why do I associate with God's people? Why do I give? Is it merely a form of godliness? Or have your hearts been transformed by God? And we come together on a morning like this with joy in our hearts because we've been set free. We've been been made new. We've been brought into the body of Christ. We are one with him and with one another. This motivates us. The sad reality that we see in these verses is that false teachers and false professors of faith have made their way into the church. And that continues into the present. One of the most sobering passages in this regard is found in Acts chapter 20. It's Paul's address to the Ephesian elders before his departure. Listen to these sobering words that Paul speaks to the overseers there at Ephesus. He says, That's a sobering passage. We must understand the times. There will be people in the church, even leaders in the church, who will look the part. But inwardly, their hearts are far from God. They haven't been transformed They haven't received the gift of new life, of eternal life. And so what are we to do? God hasn't left us to ourselves. He says, first, we must understand the times, and second, we must respond faithfully. We must respond faithfully. There's two imperatives, two commands in this passage. Understand, and avoid. Understand the times, and avoid. Avoid the false teachers. Paul instructs Timothy to avoid such people, to turn away from them, have nothing to do with them. This is the command. There are people who have rejected the gospel, and they're settled in that rejection. This is a different way than the one described of of dealing with those who are discussed at the end of chapter 2. There, Timothy, was to patiently endure evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, the hope being that God may grant them repentance. But this seems to be a different way now. The command is simply avoid them. They're dangerous. They corrupt the church. Notice in verse 6, Paul says, for this little connector for among them are those who creep into households, and he carries on. This little word for connects what came before to what follows. Let's back up for a moment. Paul says, he begins this section. You need to know something, Timothy. But understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulties for... People will be lovers of self. So he's he's laying this out for Timothy. You need to be aware of this. People will be lovers of self and lovers of money and lovers of pleasure. And now a command to you, Timothy, avoid them. Stay away from them. For, I'm going to tell you something about this group I just described. Some of them, what do they do? From among them... These people are those who creep or slip into houses. They're devious. Sounds like Jude. Jude 4 says, "...for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ." They're deceitful. I was thinking about this a bit, and uh, snakes kind of uh, come into our mind here. There's, there's, a, there's a snake in South Africa. It's very common in South Africa. It's called the puff adder. And it's kind of a fat snake. And it's very good at, at lying still it blends in. Its body is very camouflaged and it's very content to just sit and wait for days. It can wait until the prey comes just close enough and it's ready to snatch. Paul gives a warning here. Avoid the false teachers. They slip into houses and And capture weak women. They prey on the weak. When Paul says weak women, he's not not deriding women, not at all. Paul speaks very highly of women. What he's doing is he's limiting this group to the kind of women who are falling prey to the seduction of the false teachers. He says the women here are burdened with sins, they're burdened with sins. And led astray by various passions. They're weighed down by their sins and thus are susceptible to being seduced by these false teachings. We don't know the details of the sins that the women were being burdened by, but we know that there's some issue of conscience that's burdening them and they're led astray by their passions. Notice what's happening here. He says they're always learning, always learning always learning and unable to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It's possible for a person to attend a church, to be involved in a religious system year after year after year after year and never come to saving faith. There are religious systems that claim to be the way, but their teaching lacks the gospel Is thus worthless. It leads people astray. These these women were learning, but since what they were listening to was false, they're unable to be saved. There's this perpetual pursuit of knowledge, but the pursuit yields nothing of substance. And so there's a warning implicit here for us against knowledge that leads nowhere. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are learners. In fact, that's what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is a learner. But we're to be learning Christ. What is it about Christ? We learn Him and learn what it means to follow Him, how to be in a relationship with Him and how to live for Him. Those burdened with sins need to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to hear that salvation is found in Christ alone. They need to hear that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth as a man. He took on flesh and lived a perfect life. They need to hear that Jesus willingly went to the cross and took upon Himself the wrath of God for the sins of all who would believe They need to hear that every sin may be forgiven and they can be reconciled to God because of what Christ has accomplished. They need to hear that salvation doesn't come by adhering to some ascetic practice, by following some religious ritual, by keeping some moral code. This will never do because it fails to address the real problem, the sin of the creature against the Creator. There is hope in the gospel. There is hope because Christ has bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Paul says in Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. How about you this morning? Are you weighed down with the guilt of sin? Come to Jesus. Do you know him? Are you trusting in him? Do you know you can be saved today? Come to Christ. False teaching like the teachings that these women were subjecting themselves to must be identified and avoided. Why? Because it perverts the gospel and keeps people from coming to Christ to be saved. It's incumbent upon all of us, all of us as God's people, to be discerning about what voices we're listening to. Just recently we heard about the noble Bereans in Acts. They were noble because they took what they were hearing and examined the Scriptures to see if these things were so. They compared what they were hearing with the Word of God. The call is for us to do the same. Those who are leaders in the church must adhere to Scripture by God's grace, both in what is taught and what is practiced. We must be discerning people. The best way for for us to be able to identify false teaching is to know the truth. That's a principle for us. The best way to identify false teaching is to know the truth. So we pursue the truth. We pursue the truth by pursuing a person, namely Christ. To know Him. To love Him. To enjoy him. Up to this point, it's been pretty grim. Paul wanted Timothy to understand the times in which he was living, he catalogs these these characteristics of of those who were false teachers, those who were apart from Christ, those who had a form of godliness but denied its power. And then he urges Timothy to respond faithfully, namely by avoiding them. Avoid the false teaching. But there is hope. There is hope here. In verse 8, Paul compares these false teachers who opposed the truth in Ephesus to Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses. We don't find these men named anywhere else in Scripture. But according to rabbinic tradition, Janus and Jambres are the names of the magicians who opposed Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. And this example of the downfall of Janus and Jambres as a foretelling of the downfall of the false teachers leads us to the final point. We must trust the Lord for the outcome. Here is hope for the believer. We must trust the Lord for the outcome. In order to deal with difficulties in the last days, we must understand the times, we must respond faithfully, and we must trust the Lord for the outcome. The story of the plagues in Egypt and Exodus, these events are cited as examples of events that proved the downfall of these Janus and Jambres, these false teachers, we might say, these magicians. In Exodus chapter 7, we we read about Moses and Aaron appearing before Pharaoh. And Aaron takes his staff and he throws it down on the ground and the staff turns into a serpent. And these magicians come and they do the same thing. They throw down their staffs and they too turn into serpents. But do you remember what happens? Aaron's staff swallows up the magicians. And so there's an immediate realization that the work of these magicians was folly. It was ineffective. But as we continue through the narrative there in Exodus, we see the magicians were able to do some pretty remarkable things. They, like Moses, were able to turn water to blood. They were able to make frogs come up on the land like Moses. But then we come to Exodus 8, and there we see the magicians were unable to do some of the things, they were unable to produce gnats like Moses. And they concluded, this, this is the finger of God. These magicians had limits. And then came the plague of boils. These boils came upon the Egyptians and upon the magicians. They were unable to stay the hand of God. Their work was limited. Ultimately, the magicians were unable to stay the hand of the Lord as the angel of death swept through the land, killing the firstborn and leading to the exodus of God's people. The folly of these magicians and all their secret arts, indeed, the futility of their work was made known to all as God rescued his people out of Egypt and led them safely across the Red Sea. This is a picture we see throughout Scripture of salvation What's the point? What's the point? The point is this. Timothy could take courage. In the midst of all of this opposition to the gospel, he could take courage by remembering that eventually the sins of these false teachers would be exposed. Their false teaching, their slick and secret tactics, their manipulation and deception would eventually be exposed As people hear the truth of the Word of God, they begin to recognize error for what it is. Timothy's trust needed to be grounded in God. In chapter 2 and verse 19, we can take comfort in this. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. These teachers were tricking many people. But the Lord knows. The charge to Timothy was to entrust the outcome to the sovereign God, the one who says of himself, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The same is true for us today. We don't know to what degree false teaching will infiltrate the church, but we may be confident that the folly of the false teachers has a shelf life, and one day it will be exposed. It's right and necessary for us to be concerned about false teaching. But in the midst of this opposition, we can rest confidently in our great God. He tells us that false teachers like Janus and Jambres will be exposed. The call for us is to understand the times in which we live. We mustn't be naive about the presence of evil and corruption. We must respond faithfully. And with regard to the false teaching... We must avoid it. And as we do these things, we entrust the outcome to our gracious God, the one who knows and sees all things. To him be glory. Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you because you are God most high. And you have, as you've told us, declared the end from the beginning. And so we pray that we would leave here as people who are, whose faith has been encouraged this morning we would be people grounded in your word we would take comfort knowing that your spirit dwells within us you will guide us you haven't left us to our to ourselves lord will you make us discerning and wise will you give us grace to hold fast to your truth for your great namesake